While that is happening, our Frontlines team will be coming around handing out Bibles. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And if you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take one of these ones home. So they're coming around now with that. Our scripture for this morning is found in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. It's titled, The Cost of Following Jesus. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another man, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Matt. If you don't know me, I'm one of the leaders and pastors of our church family, and it is excellent to be gathered together this morning. We are going to be continuing in our series called Teach Us to Pray, and really the emphasis of this series, for any of us that might be confused by the title, is really for us as Jesus followers and those who are maybe on a journey of trying to figure out who Jesus is and what does it look like to have a relationship with God, is to really figure out how do we pray. And Jesus was pretty clear about it in the Gospels. He said, hey, when you pray, pray like this. And so I just really believe that Jesus meant that, that if he said, this is how you should learn to, le learn to pray, and this is how you should pray, then this is where we are. And so we're learning the Lord's Prayer. And so each week we've taken uh, a look at each line of the Lord's Prayer. And what we see with the Lord's Prayer is that half of the prayer focuses on loving God, and then half of the prayer focuses on how then we love others. If you're familiar with the greatest commandment, according to Jesus, it's love God and love others. And so this prayer, the first half of it focuses focuses on how we love God. The second half focuses on how we love other people. And today we're on your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which is the last line of the section before we transition to how do we now love other people in light of us praying and have our minds changed and our wills changed as we consider who God is, how then ought we to respond and look and treat the people that are around us. But before we jump into your will be done, your will be done, why don't we take a moment to be still, be silent. I invite you to close your eyes. If you're new to Church of the City, we do this every single week as we ask God to reveal to us how we're feeling and then invite Jesus into that before we jump into your will be done. And so, Jesus, we are thankful this morning that you are here with us. And God, you know us better than we even know ourselves. So you know exactly how we're feeling, what we're struggling with. Maybe we're feeling distracted or anxious. God, maybe we are not sure how we are feeling. And so we invite you, Jesus, to reveal that to us. Change us, we pray. 
pray that you would soften our hearts so that we can hear your word this morning and leave today changed. We thank you yet again for the freedom that we experience in this country. Pray that we would not take it for granted and might we stand with those who suffer. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So as I mentioned, we're on the line, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as I got thinking about this particular line, uh, this one question came to my mind that I hear a lot. And you maybe have heard this question a lot uh, if you've been around Christian community. And as a pastor, I certainly hear this question quite often if I'm sitting down with somebody uh, over coffee, over a meal, or just even in passing. And the question is this, you ready for it? What is God's will for my life. What is God's will for my life? Now, I think most people, when they ask this question, they have an idea in mind, not of the answer to that question necessarily, but in what their hopes are for the answer to that question or a way of it. So what I mean by that is to say, I think when people ask the question, what is God's will for my life? What they're saying is, what is God's plan for my life? And they imagine and they have this knowledge that God is all-knowing, and so God is also all-powerful, and so he must have created this idea for my life of all of these different actions that I'm going to take, and it's kind of like a tightrope, right? My life is a tightrope, and the goal of my life is to stay on this tightrope. So I think they imagine if I know what God's plan and will is for my life, that I'm just then going to like stay on this tightrope, and I don't want to fall off the tightrope, because if I fall off of it, then I'm not living in light of God's will for my life, and then I've messed up, and then God's going to be upset with me because I haven't stayed on this tightrope. Right? So I think a lot of people, when they ask this question, they say, what is God's will for my life? What's his plan? And I need to live in light of the tightrope that he's created for me. Now, I think that there's a problem with this. Because when we say the word will, I don't think we truly understand what God's will is or what we mean by the definition or term will. And so I just want to start there for a second. When we then pray your will be done, are we saying your plan be done? Or is it bigger than plan? What is will? And what does will mean? Well, I think Dallas Willard is really helpful on this point. Dallas Willard was a Christian uh, philosophy teacher, brilliant man, focused a lot about writing about how does someone follow Jesus? What is the way of Jesus? And in one particular book that is excellent, cannot recommend it enough, it's called Renovation of the Heart. Dallas goes so far as to describe the different components of the human being. And at one point he describes what the will is. And this is what he says about the will, which he also says are other things as well. He says this, the human heart, will, or spirit is the executive center of a human life. The heart is where decisions and choices are made for the whole person. That is its function. So the human heart, will, or spirit is the executive center of the human life. So if we're to trust that what Dallas is talking about here is correct, and I believe that he is, that when we talk about your will be done, and we're talking about God in this way, that will is not specifically plans. Will is the motivational executive center of God's desire for your life. So in other ways, it's like saying, what is God's desire? What is God's heart for my life or for your life? And so we need to ask that question. Now, before we get to what is God's desire, heart, or will for your life, I think we have to first start with, well, what is God's heart, his desire, his motivational center for the world? 
And we see this if we just start initially in creation. What does God do? Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first line of the entire Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we're brought into this story where we have to imagine, well, why would he do that? Why would God create? Why would he create the heavens and the earth? And shortly thereafter, we see God creating the cosmos. He then creates human beings, and God and humanity are together. And over the last few weeks, I've been describing this reality of heaven and earth, that heaven and earth are not two separate realities in creation, but heaven and earth are together. And when we think of heaven, what we ought to be thinking about is the place where God dwells. And so in the beginning, God creates the heaven and the earth. They're overlapping, and he has with, he is with his creation, and then he creates humanity. He creates humanity in his image, which then are to be people that then bring what God is like and his image and his presence to the rest of the world. And in Genesis 1, verse 28, we get what many people have termed is our cultural mandate, or God's instructions to the first humans. He says this in Genesis 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is our cultural mandate. God is saying, I want you to extend my rule and my reign, my presence over the earth in the way that I have designed you, in the way that I have directed you. He then instructs the humans that in order for them to do this, they also need to live in obedience, in an obedient relationship with him according to his desires and plans. And so this first instruction is don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Live in light of my love for you in the light of the knowledge and wisdom that I have for you. And tragically in Genesis 3, we are described at the fall, right? Where humanity says, we're going to go in the direction of our heart, of our desires, rather than following the desires that God has for us, rather than following the will, the motivational center of God for his humanity and us being as part of that, we are going to go in our own direction. And through the remaining parts of the Old Testament, we see that God's heart, his will, his desire is to continue to pursue humanity. And then in the climax of the scriptures, we have Jesus who comes, God himself coming to humanity to dwell with them and to ultimately change them from the inside out. And after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus then commissions his disciples and says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And truly, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we have the cultural mandate in the very beginning. We then have the great commission of God extending his rule and his reign through us, his image bearers, to the world. And if we go to the end of the story, restoration, which is a day that we look forward to, we read that Jesus is going to return and heaven and earth will once again completely overlap and God will dwell with his people. We read this in Habakkuk 2.14. This is prophesying to a day to come. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This will come, this day will come, in which heaven and earth will overlap and God's, the knowledge of God will completely take over as the waters cover the sea. 
And we look forward to that day. So that is a very quick understanding of well, what is God's heart's desire, his will for the world. And here's how I would summarize the, and answer that question. What is God's will for the world? God's will is to dwell with his people and extend his rule and his reign throughout the cosmos. That God's will is to dwell with his people and extend his rule and his reign throughout the entirety of the cosmos. In the very beginning, we see that God wants to dwell with his creation. He creates the heavens and the earth. Clearly, he wants to be with them and he wants people to be with him. Not because he needs it, but because of his love and his desire for relationship. And then in the end, we see that he will return and he will dwell with his people and his rule and his reign will extend throughout the entirety of the cosmos. This is God's will for this world, that he would be with us and that we, we then with him, would then extend his rule and his reign because he's king. And so when a king has a king and a kingdom, they want their rule and their reign extended. This is what God's will is for the world. Now then we ask the question, well, what is the result of that happening? And the result of God's presence with us and his rule and his reign extending is going to be justice. We, we're praying here on Freedom Sunday for justice. What is justice? Justice is both the reconciliation of right relationship, but it's also punishment for the wicked. When God is king, when he dwells with us and his rule and reign is extended, justice will take place. There will be reconciliation of relationships. There will be peace. There will be generosity. There won't be fighting. That when God is king and we extend his rule and his reign that these things will be the byproduct. And so when we pray, your will be done, we're saying, God, it is our desire that your desire for this world to rule and to reign would come to pass. So then what is God's will? What is his heart's desire for you and for me? Put simply, I believe it is this. It's to worship him as king and extend his rule and his reign. That if God's will is to dwell with us as our king, extend his rule and his reign, then our response and what his desire for us is for us to then worship him as our king and then obey the invitation that he says, now come with me and let's do this together. That he's not like, you go off and do it on your own. He says, no, we're joined in the process. And this pulls together both the cultural mandate of Genesis 1.28 and the great commission in Matthew. And so we are then to extend his rule and his reign. So to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is to reorient ourselves to God's will for the world and then join him in it. That we are people that understand that as people filled with the spirit of God, that then we then take, as we go, his presence will go with us and has gone before us. And we want to see the world come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and that his will would ultimately be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the next question that you might ask is like, great, that's quite a vision for our lives. That's quite a vision for the world. Wow, God, that's pretty neat. That's far beyond my, you know, my tightrope walking, right? And I think there's a lot of freedom then with how we live our lives as long as our heart and our will is in the right place aligned with God's. And we'll get to that in a minute. But then you might be asking a question, well, what gets in the way of me aligning myself with God's heart and God's desire for the world. And I think Jesus in Luke 9 gives us three things, three motives that actually get in the way and three heart desires that get in the way. So if you have your Bibles, Elissa read it for us, but I want to go there again. Luke 9, 57 to 62. 
What gets in the way? Now, the amazing thing about Jesus, if you've studied much of the Gospels and you've studied much about Jesus, is Jesus, while he has some concern about exterior actions or the way we live our lives, he's primarily concerned with our hearts. Because here's what he knows. He knows that if he has your heart, he has your actions. Because out of the overflow, he says this, out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. So what you say is simply an indication of what's going on inside of your heart. And what's going on inside of your heart is the executive center of yourself, the motivational center. And so here in this text, Jesus, as we'll see, is less concerned with the exterior actions and he's more concerned with the heart or the will. And so that's why I think this passage is also pretty amazing and pretty profound. Now, some of you, if you are, have been in uh, part of the church or a believer for a long time, I'm not saying you need to be, um, because, you know, there's lots of people here that have come to know Jesus halfway through their lives, and we celebrate that. This, so this is going to be a little bit of insight for people that have been in the church for a long time. But there used to be this movie that was pretty popular, I think it was in the 90s, called The Jesus Film. And have you ever heard of seeing The Jesus Film? Uh, then this Jesus film was uh, then transcribed and translated, and it went all across the world. And what it was was a, it was a visual, it was like a movie about Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. And I remember this particular scene in the movie. Jesus is sitting around a fire with different people, and they come to him, and there's three different people, as we're going to see in this text, coming to him. And I'll, as we go through, I'll tell you a little bit of what my response was the first few times that I heard this. Um, but anyways, that's a bit of a side tangent, but here we go. So Luke 9, verse 57 to 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now just just stop for a moment, right? This is somebody that's voluntarily saying, as Jesus is a rabbi and they're going along the road, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, if Jesus' intention was to just gather up as many followers as possible, you'd think he would go, great, come on, let's, let's go on this journey. But look what he says back, and this seems like so ambiguous. Like, if you don't stop for a moment after you hear his response and imagine yourself in the scene, like you're saying, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Well, what does Jesus say back? And I always imagine Jesus with a British accent. I'm not going to do it very well, James, my apologies. Foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now imagine being that person. You know, imagine this morning you're like, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You're kind of like, what are you talking about? Like, what's up with you, Jesus? Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? Like, if you don't like, just stop after you hear that and go, what's he talking about? I think we're missing what Jesus is saying. And this is what I think Jesus is saying, if we really look at the culture in context. Because Jesus sees through this man's desire or commitment, and I think beneath the surface, what he sees that is getting in the way for this person is false motives, false expectations, and false narratives. Jesus is wanting to make it clear to this person, listen, if you're going to follow me, you have to reconsider what it is that you're signing up for. And those that follow me have to be prepared that they might not have a place to put their head down at night. And following me is uncomfortable. 
Following me is not easy. Following me is not going to mean me riding on a stallion and you joining in a chariot behind and going forth. Following me is going to be difficult. So I don't think you might actually want what you say that you want. Now let's, let's now turn the mirror on ourselves. Some questions to reflect on. What does following Jesus mean to you? You know, these may be questions you want to write down. What does following Jesus mean to you? What does it, what does it look like to follow the way of Jesus? Could you be creating a vision and will for yourself that does not align with Jesus's? What are your motives for following Jesus and why? Would you continue following Jesus if your life was not as comfortable as it is today? And what does this expose about your will versus God's will? You know, I, 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 we have to stop and ask ourselves this question periodically. Like, why am I following Jesus? And what does it mean and look like to follow Jesus? And Jesus is doing that on the road with this person, which the person says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And once again, if Jesus is just trying to get as many people as possible, he would have said, great, you know, buckle up, you'll figure it out on the way. But what does Jesus say? No. Foxes have holds, birds of there have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's hard to follow me, and what you're imagining this is going to be like is completely different. And he's saying, count the cost. If you're going to carry the cross, you need to count the cost before joining me in the will, in my heart's desire for the world. Now, this, this isn't the only person Jesus addresses. And so if that's not difficult enough, let's go to verse 59. To another, he said, so this is now Jesus. The first person was volunteering, right? I'll follow you, Jesus. This person now, Jesus says to someone. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, I got to be honest, when I was first watching that Jesus film as a little kid and Jesus said this, I was like, wow, Jesus, you're like insensitive. Like, clearly the person's father has died and you're not going to let them grieve. What's your problem? Now, that is through the lens of my culture on this one. And if we look more accurately at this culture, it is potentially and likely that this person's father has not yet passed away. Because when someone dies, there is a whole ritual and ceremony that takes quite a bit of time. So it's likely that the father has not actually passed away. Maybe an old age projected to pass away soon. But it also, in order for this person to receive the inheritance, they need to stick through the whole process. So what Jesus is pointing out is something altogether different. He's saying what you're saying in that you're giving this excuse of I need to go bury my father. Jesus is then saying, no, let the dead to bury their own dead. Let's go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He's not being unkind. He's simply challenging this man's heart and his will and his desire. And what's, it, what's getting in the way for this person? It's personal gain and security. They're saying, Jesus, I will have you, but I also want this. They're the Jesus plus blank person. Jesus plus blank. And it immediately challenges our hearts and motives to say, okay, I want Jesus plus this. 
So what is it for you? I mean, that's the next question that we need to reflect on. What is your Jesus plus this? Because Jesus is saying, listen, he talks about money a lot. And he doesn't hate money. He simply recognizes the temptation that money has in the life of a believer is that you all will find yourself oft, often worshiping money rather than worshiping God. And he nails that all of the time. He's not anti-money. He's anti-where we worship. And so this is really a question of then what we worship, what matters. And this person is finding the hope and security in what I can acquire from my father's estate. And then I will follow Jesus. And Jesus says, no, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. My kingdom is where you'll find your security and where you'll find all the gain that you need, not in the wealth that you can accumulate for yourself. As if two people were not enough. This is another person. And now, again, imagine being there. The first person volunteered. The second person Jesus called. This person's volunteering again. So they're like, I'll do it. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those who are at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, once again, as a kid, I was like, insensitive Jesus. Like, he just wants to say goodbye to his friends and family. Like, what's so wrong about that? And again, once we look at this from a cultural lens, we see that there was likely a, a goodbye celebration that was going to happen. But wasn't as significant as the leave the dead to bury their own dead. And instead, Jesus, I think, is pointing out another heart's desire and motive. And he's saying what gets in the way for some people will be a sense of urgency and their priorities. And at some point, it needs to come to the place of like, am I going to be for God and his kingdom or am I going to be for me and mine? Am I willing to risk it all for Jesus or do I want to take my time with following him? And at this point, Jesus turns to this person and says, listen, listen, my kingdom is important and my kingdom is valuable and it means sacrificing things. And are you in or are you out? Because following me isn't easy and it requires a heart of urgency. You know, I understand the desire that many of us live with that in order to share the gospel with people, we're like, you know, we've got to, you know, prep their hearts a little bit. We've got to be friends for roughly, you know, maybe a year. We've got to have X number of times hanging out with each other, and then I'll share the gospel with them. And I think Jesus would, would sort of say, come on, it's good news, the kingdom of God. Do you want them in it or not? Share with them the good news. If it's actually good news, you'll want to share it with them. And here he's saying, look, are you urgent? Is it urgent? Is the, is the great good news of the gospel, of seeing it go to the ends of the earth, is that an urgent thing to you? Or it's like, oh, you know, we'll sort of like take our time with it. And he's challenging that aspect of our hearts, of saying it's an urgent mission. Let's go. And so when we pray, and when Jesus instructs us to pray, your will be done, he is challenging us to consider our wills, our motives, our loves, and what we believe is most urgent in the world. 
is a prayer of surrender, alignment, repentance, confession, and urgency. When we are instructed to pray, your will be done, Jesus is challenging us to consider our wills, motives, loves, and what we believe is most urgent in the world. And it is a prayer of surrender, alignment, repentance, confession, and urgency. It's a tough prayer. It's a challenging prayer. But you know what? It's also a prayer that we see Jesus pray. This is a prayer that we see Jesus pray, not one time, but three times. So if you have your Bibles, please go with me to Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here in this section of the scriptures, we see Jesus praying this. Matthew 26, 36 to 46. says this, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. They said to him, Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This mention of the cup is is symbolism to the Old Testament. And what he's saying is the cup is this is the cup of divine judgment, of divine wrath of God and his holiness upon sin. And what he's, so what he's saying is, he's saying, let this cup, this divine judgment, pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 40, and he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Not I will, but your will be done. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Fascinating with Jesus. He not just instructs us to pray it, he also is a model of someone who prays it himself. Now, I think sometimes we forget about Jesus. Something that sometimes I project onto Jesus is like, well, you know, he had no choice in the matter. But here we see in this text that three times Jesus prays that he wouldn't have to taste the divine judgment or the cup unless it was the will of the Father. And so what is he communicating? He's saying, I'll take it if you want me to take it, but I'd rather not. 
I mean, Jesus could have escaped. Sometimes we forget about this too. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He could have escaped down the back of the Mount of Olives, gotten in a boat and sailed away. But what does he do? He prays. He's sorrowful. Have you ever thought about why is he sorrowful and troubled? Because he's beginning to taste the cup of God's wrath, the separation of father and son that had never been the case before. And he's now willing as he's coming to the father to say, not my will, but yours be done. I will lay at your hand, do whatever it takes. And I am willing to surrender myself. But if there's another way, let it pass for me. Three times he prays it. Yet the father says no. This is the only way. And Jesus accepts it and takes it for us voluntarily at the Father's will. So why does he do it? Why does Jesus do this? I think the answer to that question is because it was the will of the Father to dwell with us. It's the will of the Father to dwell with you. That in his holiness, you and I, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, cannot be in his presence because we are unholy. He is holy. And so a perfect mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ, needs to stand in that gap, take our unholiness on himself, give us the holiness that he acquired in his life, death, and resurrection so that we could spend eternity with God, so that God could dwell with us, so man could dwell with God and God could dwell with man. Jesus did this so you can dwell with God, so he can be your king. Because he loves you. Sometimes we, we, we say that widely, right? Like, well, God loves you. And we, we think of it in the plural sense, which he does. But think about this. God loves you. Jesus loves you. I want you to close your eyes for a second. I want you to take your right hand and I want you to place it over your heart. Jesus loves me. Say it out loud. Jesus loves me. It was the will of the Father to dwell with us and he made that way possible through Jesus. And Jesus experienced and took the wrath of God upon himself for you and for me so we could experience God's presence forever. That's how much he loves us. So Jesus is our savior, but then he also becomes a model that in a moment of being alone, you know, you've maybe heard some people say, like, you are who you are when nobody else is looking. Here is Jesus when nobody else is looking in the garden. He could have left and escaped. But what does he do? He throws himself into the hands of his father, even though he knows that that could mean rejection on the cross. And we hear it in his voice on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? so that you and I would not be forsaken. And every failure that we make and every mistake and every sin that we commit of chasing after our heart's desire, our heart's will, Jesus takes 
upon himself to give us freedom and so that we can dwell with God and so God can dwell with us because he loves us. And it's the will of God to dwell with us as king and for his rule and his reign to be extended. And then our response to him as our king is to worship him and participate in extending his rule and his reign. And this is what it means to pray, your will be done. Your will be done, that if his will is going to come, the will of my heart, which is oriented through self-worship, to false narratives, to personal gain and security, must die so that his will of dwelling as our king and us worshiping as king will come to fruition in our time. Would you stand with me and let's pray. God, you're so great. You know us completely. And as Jesus saw the heart of each of these individuals, two who voluntarily stood up and said they would follow you, you looked back and saw their motivations. And Jesus, you know that we can do all of the right action, but it can be motivated from the wrong place, the wrong will, the wrong desires. And so we thank you, Jesus, that you have saved us from those things, that the penalty towards those wrong hopes and desires have been nailed to the cross. And so our response to the gospel that of what you have done for us rather than what we could do for ourselves, may we simply worship you, but we worship you as king, the king who's on the throne, who has given us salvation, who has given us security, who has given us freedom. And I pray then that we would be a freedom people who pray, your will be done. God, we want to see heaven overlapped earth. We want hell kicked out of it. And as you take over, the kingdoms of darkness and the kingdoms of the evil one are exposed and they're expelled. So I pray that you this morning would expose the kingdoms of this world that are going on in our own hearts and in our lives and that you would expel them so that we can worship you in splendor and in truth, obeying you and trusting you. And that as we return to our Savior and King, that we would bask in your worthiness, in your glory, in what you have done. With this we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.